0: What would have been radical and would have actually gotten him like disbarred or thrown out of there or they were arrested is if he had said, there is therefore no other name under heaven whereby any of you in this room will be saved, no matter how much stimulus checks you give us or not. And, And that would have gotten him in trouble.
1: Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Here, as usual, with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How you guys doing? Great. Yeah, good, Nick. Any uh, New Happy Year's Tiffany. resolutions this year? Do you guys do those?
2: <laughs> I steadfastly refuse to make resolutions for anything.
1: Yeah, yeah I just Bethany gave Christ more time.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna fail. So I not why why load myself up with Pharisaic guilt and
0: <laughs> right well, I front? just I always just I, two, I do two things. You know, it's not that big a deal. I pray without ceasing, and I'm constantly mortifying my sin. So that's just about. <laughs> Other than that, I figure, Saint you know, JD. <laughs> I always have ideas though, but I feel like I All have right. a new year's resolution every week. That's <laughs> it's right. like every, every week I'm like, here's a good idea. If I had, here's the six things that I know, if I just changed and my life would be like instantly better in every single capacity. And I don't change any of them ever. So there we go.
1: My habit of not Making New Year's resolutions is so firmly formed for my years that I um felt like you do, Matt, that I can't remember to do them, although I did um I do have an idea that a real Christian should make as Chady implied, like really hard resolutions so that we can be constantly thrown back on the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. <laughs> so I used to say no resolutions now I say, shoot for the moon, make them as hard as possible. <laughs>
0: That's right. If you even think of your brother with anger in your heart, you've killed him. So just start there. Don't kill anyone this year. (laughs) See how that works out. (laughs) Amen.
1: So today, guys, uh, we're going to do sort of a combination episode, uh, part current events, part classical Anglican theology. We're going to talk about one of our 39 articles, as we have on occasion last year. In this case, Article 18, which is called Of Obtaining Eternal Salvation Only by the Name of Christ, with perhaps special emphasis on that name of Christ. Um, In John chapter 14, Jesus tells his followers that if they ask anything in his name, he will do it. And that's why traditionally, Christians have ended their prayers with In Jesus' name, Amen. The Amen, meaning so be it, which, of course, brings us to our current event. Matt, I wonder if you want to bring uh, the people up to date on the most recent developments in Christians ending their prayers in (laughs) public
2: places. (laughs) I'm sure most of our listeners have heard about the Amen, a woman, but they may not have all heard of the uh, the preceding part of the prayer. This was a prayer that was offered by a Kansas City Congressman Emanuel Cleaver II, He's also an ordained minister in Methodist United Methodist Church. And he prayed, and I'll just read you the last last half of it. Uh, we ask it, the things he prayed for, in the name of the monotheistic God, Brahma, the cre- the creator God in Hinduism, and God known by many different names and by many different faiths, Amen and All Woman. <laughs> so... <laughs> So you know, everyone's pointed out that you know, amen, isn't a gendered
0: term. Like Mike Judge couldn't have written a better prayer for that. that was, uh, you right. know, or like, are the guys from South Park? Like they might as well have written that. Yeah. It's amazing.
2: Yeah. So, so amen's just meaning it, so be it or it is true. Uh, it's it's not a it's not a it doesn't have anything to do with gender. But he the congressman later on said, well, you know, I noticed there were a lot of women in the in the chamber, so I didn't want to leave them out. Uh, and so I kind of thought I'd make a pun. I mean, <laughs> so you, who who you you're praying? So who are you talking to? Are you exactly talking to? Who, who Who is this prayer for? <laughs> right. So it was fascinating, but, but of course, in the uh, amen uh, woman bit of the of the conversation, the, the fact that he directed his prayer to the monotheistic God, who is Brahman and all the other names by which he's known or she is known. <laughs> yeah, but did he, so
0: I, I, you know, the semantics of it sort of lost me when I was listening to it, because did he, he didn't limit it to monotheistic God. It was no, no. monotheistic God and, I mean, he didn't say and, think, but like.
1: I think he's doing three things here. I think he's doing <laughs> the monotheistic God, which is already. Oh, right, an and the
0: many names.
1: Already oh. an insulting implication that Allah and Yahweh and God, the father of Christianity, are all the same. Right, the Abrahamic
0: faiths, yes. And
1: Brahma, which is the creator God in Hinduism, and then, as a catch-all, God, right. who is known by many Whatever names, else. by many faces, all the well, same. He just, oh. it's,
0: he just gets that from um, what's his name, Jane Robinson, the yeah. quote-unquote bishop Gene Robinson's prayer at the inauguration: "The God of our many understandings." You know, it's like the it's like the faceless God in uh, Game of Thrones. Uh, you know, it's like such a novel, interesting, and sort of radical concept these people have. You know, that there's a um, there's a tomb, there's a there's an altar to an unknown God like who would have yeah, thought literally
1: and then of course the lighthearted pun defense it's always a good look when you have to admit publicly that your prayer wasn't actually to god but was intended more as a sort of public performance or stand up comedy routine so there's a lot to do here there's of course as
0: we've just sort of <laughs> yeah, there was uproarious laughter at that right, such right. a such a w- really witty
1: as we've as we've alluded to there's obviously the sort of gender inclusivity shark jumping of the uh, Amen and ah uh, woman but i think more disconcertingly we have an ordained christian minister not praying in the name of jesus which as our article 18 states is the only name by which we might be saved. So let me read article 18 for you guys, and then we can sort of have our, wide, our normal wide-ranging conversation um, from there. This is article 18 of our Anglican 39 articles. Of obtaining eternal salvation only by the name of Christ, they also are to be had accursed that presume to say that every man shall be saved by the law or sect which he professeth, so that he be diligent to frame his life according to that law and the light of nature. For Holy Scripture doth set out unto us only the name of Jesus Christ, whereby men must be saved. So we have this great distinction here. The name of Jesus Christ, which we read in Scripture, is above every other name. And yet we have this public example of a professing Christian praying in every other name but not the name of Jesus Christ. What are we to make of this?
2: Uh, I, I've always loved that article. I think it's the most metal of all of our articles. <laughs> Start, it starts off with, if you believe this other thing, you are cursed. And then it goes on to, uh, to be a new one. Articles? Yeah, the most metal of all of our
0: articles. <laughs> okay. I was like, oh, well, that's true. Metal. Like, have you yeah, I get it. No, so, no, like um, like, like Dimebag yeah. Daryl.
2: I, there's no pulling punches there if you if you don't if you don't hold to the exclusivity of salvation by conscious faith in jesus christ then you are to be held accursed that's you damned you're going to help you know <laughs> which i, I mean I, I agree with but you that is not that is not the kind of language you hear surrounding the discussion with regard to inclusivity versus exclusivity and pluralism in our day uh you know no no one would no one would Put forward an article like that in our day, I think, but it is—it's very. Clear. I think I think the, the the standard position of the Anglican Church, the confessional position of the ACNA, and the or at least Anglicanism, is that conscious faith in Jesus Christ is necessary for for salvation, and that cuts right against the very popular view within the Christian realm, and uh, I think it's actually the doctrinal the doctrinal view of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, which says that. You know, if you, if you, if a Muslim, uh, a person living in a Muslim country, for example, w- just follows the laws of Islam to the best of his or her ability, and is sincerely, you know, seeking to, to submit himself or herself to the truth, then somehow the, the grace of Christ, will be mediated through the the instruments of Islam, so you have all these anonymous Christians out there who who don't know they're Christians. Runner. Yep. 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 who don't know they're Christians, but who are really Christians because they are being justified by Christ, they just don't know it.
0: Well, you know, Fitz Allison wrote in his book, um, The Rise of Moralism, talks about how uh, even with an Anglicanism over the first couple of generations of the Anglican divines, there was this sort of loss of this Christocentric emphasis, and it began to be better to be ignorant of Christian doctrine than to be knowledgeable of it, because there was this argument that if you didn't know any better, then how could you be judged? Um, Um, And so he makes the whole argument that that eventually it was almost sort of well, almost it began to undercut passionate evangelism because it said, you know, it's better for you to be faithful, you know, Zoroastrian or, you know, animist than it would be to be a backslidden Christian. You know, so that was the that was the idea because because there was this false understanding that somehow ignorance of the law doesn't hold you accountable to it. And that's just not what um, the Bible argues. You know, our Bible argues very clearly that we are not only not ignorant of the law, but we are actively and in our unrighteousness suppressors of the goodness and true uh, religion of God. You know, that's what Paul says, that we are without excuse, you know, un apologetica, and then we say, You know, which is a tough thing to preach, which is why we do we preach the gospel. You know, we come back to this every time. Like this is not good news. It's not initially good news, but there is good news to be had. But I think that it's it's with people falling over themselves to try to be to be more fair than God, supposedly, or more compassionate than God, to try to make it um, there, there, you know, this will somehow make me seem more loving or more inclusive than, than perhaps, you know, uh, you may have thought Christians were supposed to be. But along the way, as it was always the case, you will end up just eviscerating the, the whole heart of the message, you know, entirely on, on, on the way to trying to be more something than God is for the world.
1: So I know... I know you guys that the Bible says that we are all without excuse, but how, and I'm, I'm asking this as, you know, for a friend, <laughs> how is it that that can be true? How can, you know, the proverbial child living in a village in Africa who's never heard of God, how is it that scripture defends the argument that we are all without excuse, that we know the law, whether we know it or not?
2: Well, I mean, I think in you know, Romans 1 Romans 2, that person living on you know, the, the very remote island um, has knowledge of God's existence and His nature. God has given that person his that knowledge, and also God's law is and is written on the heart of the person. And and yet, in both cases, the person will suppress the knowledge of God that He's given, and either either by denying there is such a thing as a, as one God, or or taking the knowledge of that one God and twisting it in some in some way, into into some other kind of uh, deity that, that he's not, um, and with the moral law, it it, it it will you know like we all do. We've talked about this many times in this show. Suppress the sharpness of it in order to self justify. That's what human, human beings do. Or I guess you know, I guess the other option would be to just, just live in despair. But I think that the common way of doing it is to, is to suppress knowledge of God's law. So everybody, all all human beings. Regardless of whether they live, regardless where they live, regardless of whether or not they've heard the gospel, are all guilty of rejecting the truth that God has revealed. And you know, when a parishioner asks me this question, I feel a lot of sympathy for parishioners as I have this question. I feel less sympathy for theologians, but when parishioners ask me this question, I go back to that promise that Jesus makes whoever seeks, finds. Now, I don't believe that the human person in our depravity will ever willingly seek God. We we want to suppress him. But say say there is someone out there who God has so worked in that person's heart that that person begins to seek the truth. The promise is not that, okay, then God will work through the pagan religion on that island to, to somehow apply the grace of Christ anonymously to that person. He who seeks finds. He who seeks finds Christ. Whoever is truly seeking, wherever that person lives in the world, God will reveal Jesus to that person, maybe by some missionary somewhere, maybe by a Bible flying out of an airplane somewhere. Or a dream. Yeah, Yeah, right,
0: right, right. We exactly. don't know how this, I mean, angels have, have appeared, you know, yeah. like yes. I mean, they're very frightening is what I, exactly. what I, but, but that's a good point though, Matt, because the, the, the you know, it, again, it comes back to the, to the whole question of faith. Like when, so there's a couple of, a couple of arguments here that I've run into one, you know, I used to be very consumed by this question um, and was sort of, uh kind of put it up all the time as a you know what about these people in the far corners of the earth you know and finally someone came back to me and said well if you're so concerned about them why don't we get you out to the far corners of the earth and so then there we no longer will there be any problem with these people having not heard um because you'll tell them and that was interesting conversation for me because it forced like the real question which is whether or not i believed one at all really but but more than that like did god was he trustworthy? Did he actually, will he provide, you know, for the sheep that he is calling? Like did Jesus's promise that you will not lose any that you have given me actually true. And if that's true, that means that, you know, in the far reaches of the, you know, islands we've yet to discover that either there's a, there's a missionary we'll find out about, you know, 50 years from now that was, you know, killed and, and eaten, but, but, uh, but was ministered to, and then converted the entire Island um, as you know, we hear about, but or or um, we'll find ourselves there, you know, or we'll, we'll, I mean, who knows how it will happen, but, but the question is whether God is trustworthy and his promises are, are true. And so if they are, well, then it's not a question of if or when, but simply how. And then the question to pose to you and to me and to, to anyone asking me is, well, how are, you, how are you contributing? You know, you may not be able to go to, to northern Kenya, but we've got some people there who would love to, um, you know, who need a, a new car, you know, um, or who need some, some help and support. Let's talk about that. And that's the beautiful sort of interconnectedness of it, um, which is undercut, which is entirely undercut by a sidestepping. Of the uniqueness of Christ. I mean, I love this this statement about the article because it doesn't, it says, you know, it's they're 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 anathematizing the people that are making this argument, you know. I mean, that there are people out there who sort of believe this is one thing. But they're saying, look, those of you who are saying that you can basically by the you know, the sincerity of your misguided belief. Can somehow obtain salvation are misguided. Like that is to be anathematized. Now that people have sincere beliefs, we're not we're not questioning that, and that people we need to be gentle and respectful, as Peter says in our in our discussions with people who don't see Jesus as the only way. But but as people who profess Christianity, according to the 39 articles, which is just very scriptural, to say otherwise is not Christian.
1: And this is why having a specific deity who makes specific promises about a specific way of salvation is actually good news because if you have this congressman's prayer as the only thing to hang on to then you might go from Brahma to Allah to a tree in your yard to whoever hoping that one of them will actually assure you and say yes I can save you, and I will, but none of them will do that. The only thing that we have to hold on to, the only thing that will comfort us, the only thing that will assure us of our salvation in the eyes of Almighty God is a God who speaks, a God who makes promises in Jesus Christ, and he keeps them.
2: Amen. The, other, the other gods don't even promise to do that. They, the, what they promise is, you know, we'll give you the path, we'll give you the way, we'll show you what to do, um, and then you do it. That's right. You know, Islam... Okay, hey, you, 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 you follow these five pillars. And then hope. Um, and then hope. Maybe God will be merciful. I mean, we know, we know God is merciful sometimes, and maybe if, if you're lucky, that he'll be merciful to you. But this is what you need to do. If you're not doing this thing, yeah. you're going to so, so no other religion really says you can't do what you're required to do, but here God has come to us to do it for you. That's yes. the unique thing about Christianity that that um, that puts every other that and, and it's reason why it's so difficult for human beings is because it, it really does um, put to shame all of our pretensions, all of our all mm-hmm. of our uh, assumptions about our own abilities.
0: Yeah, and I think I mean it's it, you know it goes back to the Old Testament too. I was just reading um, commentary on the Ten Commandments a little while back. And talking about even the shame, you know, I'm the Lord, your God has called you out of Israel. You know, you have no other gods before me. You know, the sort of the first commandment idea, um, even embedded in that was basically, well, not basically, essentially the, the, the inability of them to save themselves. Like, I am your Lord who have called you out of, you know, therefore you will have no other gods but me. There's this. There was this sort of recognition of the the gracefulness of God, you know, bringing light to the dark wherever He does, and then and then by by extension, being the only God worthy of of worship, the only God worthy of, of honor, you know, because the other gods like the Molech and Baals and the Asherahs and things, these were all just essentially catchphrases for some sort of animistic quid pro quo God, you know, like if you worship enough, when you get your things together, then the crops. Will Will come or not, the babies will come or not. The victory will come or not. Which was a very different idea than a personal God who had personal relationship with his people. You know, one of jealousy, one of one of delight, one of wrath, one of one of uh, anger, one of joy, and ultimately one of mercy. And that is just an. I mean, there's every other religious system is a variant of Molech and Baal except for Christianity. And that's what, the, that's what the article 18 clearly states, like, you know, sect or law or some other uh, profession outside of Christ is is to be anathematized.
1: It's fitting that we're talking about this right after Christmas because it is Christmas that really throws this into its sharpest relief. It's the most unique thing that that almighty God would in some sense, leave his heavenly realm and come here to dwell with us in all the muck and mire and sinfulness that is human life to redeem it rather than setting up a complicated obstacle course of righteousness that we have to navigate to get to him. He comes down to us and calls us righteous. Again, that creative word that actually makes a thing true was mind-blowing then, has been mind-blowing for the history of the church and is continuing to be mind-blowing to people today that Almighty God would come to us rather than waiting for us to, to get to him.
2: I mentioned that in my Christmas sermon that, you know, you take other other religions, Buddhism could exist without Buddha. Buddha doesn't have to be an historical figure for the system itself right. um, to, to exist. Even Islam, even though it depends on the revelation that came through, through Muhammad, that it could have come through anybody. It, 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 Muhammad isn't, doesn't do anything except just that he's a vehicle of, of the revelation of the Quran. Uh, only Christianity has this one figure who, who, comes and does what has to be done. That's right. And, and, and so for us, you know, history is, is bound up with our, with our doctrine. And That's history. please. <laughs> if this one man who's also God wasn't born, we would have nothing.
0: We would, yeah, it would all fall apart. And the problem that I have with all of this in the modern culture is that had this ever been under dispute, particularly in the first couple of centuries of Christianity, like we wouldn't be here. Yeah. You know, the guy used to joke, it's not funny anymore. That if you know, the criteria for for a bishop that I would respect would be whether or not he would have been martyred in the first century or not. You know, and most of them that I know would not have been, uh, precisely on this point, because it would have been like, well, you know, who are we to really say whether or not caesar isn't sort of divine you know in addition to jesus or something like this you know and so um sure here's a little pinch here or there like what's the big deal and then you have peter and john you know in acts 4 clearly saying there is therefore you know no other name there is salvation and no one else for no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved like there's It was as radical then as it is today. And it's as seemingly offensive to non-believers outside of faith as the proclamation of God ever is outside of faith to unbelievers. You know, you will have no other gods but me. Well, who the heck do you think you are, right? I mean, but when that is true, good and beautiful, well, then it becomes the only thing that's important. And so, of course, the Christian faith, this has been the cornerstone. As Peter back in Acts, this is the cornerstone. You know, this is that you have rejected. This is the cornerstone. And that the fact that we still have people rejecting it today, again, it just goes back to what we talk about almost every week. Like it's, there's nothing new under the sun and all of this sort of pretension that this is sort of a modern idea, you know, this is the newfangled, you know, our new insights into things. I mean, what did C.S. Lewis call it, you know, chronological snobbery or something, you know, bulbarism like this is just, it's, it's sad. And so we go back to that prayer, you know, this, this idea that this guy had, that he was somehow... You know i bet he thought he was really radical i bet yeah, he thought he was, he was not like
1: making a pun he was definitely saying something
0: he thought he was like you know he's like the bishop again in in the in c.s lewis kick right now uh the uh the great divorce you know like his radical positions that just so happened to be totally embraced by the completely secular neo-pagan you know nationalists in the uh, congress and he thought that was radical like to what would have been radical and would have actually gotten him like disbarred or thrown out of there or they were arrested as if he had said, there is therefore no other name under heaven whereby any of you in this room will be saved no matter how much stimulus checks you give us or not. <laughs> yeah. And and that would have gotten him in trouble, you know, and that's just this irony of it all. Like it's 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 so clearly a capitulation to the spirit of the age and such a, you know, not that not that I am grateful for or, or that I feel like I've come to this in any way other than the mercies of God, but, you know, you go back to read like the, the, even the minor prophets, you know, read Micah and Ezra and Habakkuk and sort of their, their sort of just clear calling out of the kind of syncretism of the, of the people. And it's hard not to, to feel exasperated with them at times, particularly when as ministers we're looking at other ministers who, you know, you had this opportunity, I didn't. And again, like I didn't, I'm not saying it wouldn't have taken some courage, But the thing that you thought was courageous is the exact opposite of what actually courage would have been in that situation. And, you know, I've personally, I've had experience one time in a very much lower level with a, uh, like a local, it was sort of a a independent school convocation that I was asked to give the um, commencement prayer at. And so I sort of knew what this was asking for. And I had a very polite, but sort of convicted conversation with the headmaster and said, I just wanted to be clear about you know, have a lot of students that go to this school, and they would find it very confusing if somehow I didn't make an explicitly Christian prayer, because I'm sort of my thing, you know, to <laughs> talk about about how when you pray to God, no one knows who you're praying to unless you sort of give God a name, um, His pronouns, as it were. And um, and he said, well, that's fine, but that's not what we're looking for. And then kind of left it floating, as if I would then be say, well, well, that's okay, you know, this time. And I said, well, I've you know, I'd sort of figured that would be the case, so I can politely decline and it was a polite conversation which evidently in retrospect got back to me that it was it was sort of offensive to him that I would you know not take the honor but but at the end of the day, I wanted to be clear for him and for my sake to to just say, look, this is more honest and less awkward than to pretend uh, to perpetuate this myth that you think that I'm laboring under, which is that um, there are many ways up the hill, you know, to the divine mountain. Um, and you may believe that, but I certainly don't. And um, And we're not going to, I'm not going to, you know, it's like Solzhenitsyn. I'm not going to participate, say, or do anything that is going to perpetuate a lie in my life to the extent that I can do it. And that was at least one, you know, small little gesture that, you know, I don't know. I felt like that was in my little way. It was um, something that made me feel, uh, I don't know. I was like, okay, this is, that was a real adult thing to say. So praise God.
1: I wonder if you guys think that the stand firm equivalent podcasts in islam and hinduism and well not paganism of course but these other these other religions ought to be just as offended as we are by a prayer like this do you think that a devout muslim hears a prayer like this and thinks you know that's about right allah is just like these other gods i mean it's ridiculous yeah. who other than a true pagan or like god is in everything who is this actually speaking to who is who is who is enlivened by a prayer like this that's
0: an very interesting point like non-religious yeah, non unbelievers like yeah. pagans yeah, yeah.
2: But, they, but they will say part of the reason of praying a prayer like that and then saying saying words like that is because well you know this is the only way to bring about unity if we can find some way to to, to unite us all together and uh and by by saying that all of our gods are the same so bring about peace you know they get, you. I will have a far better conversation with a very Orthodox Jew Amen. who yeah. refuses to accept Jesus as anything but a heretic um, than I would with, uh, and I think we'd we come away with mutually respecting each other. If I'm as firm on my faith as he is in his, then then there would be hope for a really honest conversation between a very liberal, maybe Reformed Jew and a and an Episcopalian. Yes, they're they're both in the process of compromising their faith, so they're yes. not going to actually pr- produce anything of of lasting value. <laughs> it's it's it, well, I there's think no they, peace they between, between the religions. You're melding them yeah. into one.
1: If J.D. had agreed to pray a prayer that he didn't believe at that school, one of the results would be to leave that headmaster in his sin. But the the clarity of the truth, even though, as we always say, it's bad news at first, it can sound bad, is the first step on the pathway to redemption.
0: Amen. Amen. Yeah, I think Leslie Newbigin said it in the Gospel for Pluralist Society. You know, he spent so much time in India. And uh, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, he basically said something to the effect that the, to the more, to the, the clearer that I am in my own convictions and the more sort of confident I am in what I believe, then the closer I can actually get to, to unbelievers or people of other faiths. Because there's, a, there's sort of a confidence that you're not you know, that you can get closer, you know, it's like, I have the picture of like, you know, lowering yourself out over an abyss, you know, it's like, I know I'm secure. So I can go all the way down in even and really get into it with you about sin, death and the devil. However, you can, you can uh, strew it, you know, with unconcerned, or at least not as fearful that somehow I'll be uh, compromised or like lose my um, conviction or faith and really get into it with you. You know, if you are, in fact, someone that's sincerely looking for the truth as I am, you know, and I think that's where. I think that's what the, the great kind of sad cynicism of the pluralistic kind of relativistic mindset is, is that essentially there's been an abdication of any confidence in the truth of anything, much less the truth of God and his word spoken in Christ. And then therefore all you're left with is, is a sort of spiritualistic moralism, which, you know, can only last, it turns out, a generation or two, you know, is what we're finding now. Because, you know, a, a, um, an environmental moralism seems to be like a pagan, you know, uh, earth worship moralism seems to be a lot more uh, uh, pervasive and at least a lot more attractive than a Jesus-flavored Unitarian moralism. At least as far as the mainline church attendance versus a, um, like a Greta Thunberg rally would go, you know. And so I think that's what we're, what we're looking at.
2: I don't know if you guys remember, but a few, a few, three years ago, four years ago, there was a controversy at Wheaton over a professor, female professor who was wearing hijab. and Oh, yeah. Yeah, and she was, and she was, her claim was, of course, the God of Islam is the same as the God of uh, Christianity. She believes in Jesus, of course, but, you know, it's the same God, ultimately. Um, and And that's a very, I, I remember that being a pretty, heated controversy on you know christian twitter anglican twitter even and anglican and anglican facebook uh conversations people siding with her or against her and i think the whole thing boils down to you know when it comes to especially to the three quote-unquote abrahamic faiths um is is what has jesus said about himself and that's his right. identity and how that how what whether that's of essence whether what he says and what he claims reflects the essence of who god is because if it it does which i think it does of course then uh, worshiping god apart from christ who is god uh praising him outside of the understanding of the trinity is not really you're praising something that doesn't exist you're not not really praising the jew who rejects jesus even though he has the the, the the old testament insofar as he says no this jesus is not part of the godhead he has constructed an idol before jesus came no after jesus has come and revealed more of who god is uh or who god is yes when you reject that claim you then reject the god of the old testament so the the jew doesn't worship god who doesn't if he doesn't worship jesus he doesn't worship god jesus said that explicitly in john chapter 8 And the Muslim who of course doesn't reject doesn't accept the Old Testament or the New Testament or Jesus of course doesn't worship the true God. If you do not have Christ, you do not have the Father.
0: That's right.
1: And for somebody who would call themselves a Christian and who would therefore at least claim some reliance on the scriptures for the description of their faith, could not, as you say, get around this idea. I mean, we just As I said, we just had Christmas and on several occasions read John chapter one. And John says explicitly that no one has seen God. It is in Christ that he is made known. That's right. So you cannot know what God is like except by the revelation of himself in. That's right. Jesus Christ.
0: That's right, and this is where we get into the debates or the, the distinctions, which I think are with um, that are meaningful about the economic and um, sort of social trinity, or the um, the you know the idea of sort of the um, ontological or economic trinity. Excuse me, you know, the, the God in Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then God, what He does. You know, Father sending the Son, the Son dying for this for the lost, uh, the lost being brought to faith through the power of regenerative of the Spirit, and so you know, that these, are, these shouldn't be put at odds with each other, but can be seen as as sort of flip sides of the same coin to the, to the extent that if we don't know, as Philip Melanchthon said, Christ and his benefits, you know, which were brought about by the love of the Father and then administered through the power of the Spirit, well, then we don't know God. We don't know Christ. We don't know the Spirit. Like, we don't. And so, so anyone claiming to know God outside of the redemptive work of Christ for them you know, at least in good Lutheran Reformation fashion doesn't, doesn't know God like you're not talking like you're talking about a projection of sort of your moral ideal in the world that's either killing you or you're you know you're either you're meeting it and you're excited or you're getting crushed by it and that's why you can't go to church you know um you're you have some idea of this ephemeral power of life force you have some other idea of God other than the one who has come to to die for you you know this is why again back to the time of the reformation Cranmer picks this up in our liturgy too it was big for Luther was the prote the for you. You know, this this was such a big deal that, that it was hammered home because that was the missing piece is that when you start talking about God in the abstract, you begin to forget God in the the practical for you. And so even in our you know the long communion uh, sentence, which I wish they had kept in the ACNA, you know, this is the body of Christ given for you, take and eat in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. This was the long repetition of this essentially trinitarian admin or, or a mantra that god father son and holy spirit in all of his glory is for you in this person of christ on the cross for your sins and that's that outside of that then you have some sort of good idea perhaps but it's not uh the gospel and it certainly isn't christianity
2: I remember very early in my ministry, but I think, actually I think it was the first year, maybe first, it was before the controversy of Eugene Robinson. So I, I I started, Good Shepherd was kind of a typical Episcopal church at the time. And there was a woman at Good Shepherd who was holding an interfaith meeting in our parish hall. And I didn't know about that. So I, I walk in. I don't a, know
0: about
2: that. <laughs> on a Wednesday okay. morning, and and you know there there there's this kind of prayer circle down in the parish hall with a you know, guy in a Buddhist garb, a guy in uh, I guess a Muslim person, a Muslim woman, and my parishioner, and several other people dressed in their own, and they're here. They're praying to whatever, and and they're and they're they ended. A, I, I I was stunned. Um. So afterwards, I asked her to come talk to me. And, and she said, Oh, I meant to meet. I meant to ask you permission if we could have this little interfaith prayer con- prayer meeting down, downstairs. And I said, well, you know, no. <laughs> you Are you evangelizing yeah. them? <laughs> yeah, right, right. I said, no, you, you can't, you can't do that here. And, um, and so she proceeded to send me this. She, she went away very angry and she sent me this, well, she handed me this seven page paper called the mountain in which, you know, every, you know, you, you all paths lead to the top of the summit. And so she was just kind of yeah. describing how every religion is the same, really, when you can boil it down to the, the essential parts. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time with her, you know, kind of unpacking that, so, you know, explaining the exclusive claims of, of, of Christianity and especially of, of the gospel and the cross and how those, those don't in any way consist with the other religions. And she left. I mean, I, I was a young guy, so I'm sure I was arrogant. I'm sure I was a jerk. But, but she, kinda, she left very upset. She said hard things. I said
0: hard things. It was, I one, said it was before things. Facebook, so you were saying hard things. you know, things I didn't say it
2: winsomely. You know, I could have been more winsome, and I wasn't winsome. That's right, because I'm sure that, that
0: would have really, really – <laughs> That would have changed everything. Winster. That's right.
2: <laughs> but she left. She, that was it. She was done. She left the church, and, uh, and, and there were several, several people with her. Uh, over that particular over that particular issue, um,
0: I've had this conversation with a number of people over my lifetime. Also, I think it's a natural one. I think it's an important one to have. I mean, this is what Peter, James, and Paul and and John kept getting in trouble with, you know, in the in the old in the New Testament. And I think you know, I ran into it through a book called The Cloud of Unknowing. If you know this book, it's sort of like a collection of mystical sort of yep. dreamscapes, mindfulness, sort of thing from the 14th century and you know some kids that i was working with um at the time had gotten into it or it was i don't know how they got it but anyway it was a good conversation over a couple of years and actually one of the one of the people who i'm sure doesn't you may listen to this had uh stayed in touch with me all the way up until recently, as one can do with Facebook, and every sort of six to eight months, I get some random, you know, Facebook message that um, from from the far corners of the earth about how I was being too dogmatic or too um, strident. And I had a lot of sympathy for him in particular, because, because it came from a place of wanting to love the world more than God love the world, you know, like, that's like, it just seems so yeah. So unfair. And so, um, and I kept trying to, you know, you can only do so much intellectually and try to say, well, this is how it works out. But fundamentally, what I kept just praying for, and I guess I pray for today is that, is that, you know, I can't break through for that with you. And I can't make you grateful for your salvation in a way that would then allow you to, we go back to this, trust God for, for what's in his purview and not yours, Uh, because as long as he was sitting up there basically trying to figure out how it would make sense if he were actually in charge and loving and compassionate the way that God should be and not the way that the Bible says, he is then then he would be a believer and it was just and so i i i feel for that woman and i feel for him and i and i feel for the impulse to a certain degree because because i think that there's a we talked about it before there's a there's a a divine gift of faith which reveals as luther said not only the joy of your salvation but the depth of your sin you know, I mean, it's not, it's not a natural thing for sinners to come and confess almighty God, you know, I have sinned against you in thought word and deed for things done and left undone. like, and to genuinely believe it and to genuinely, you know, as C.S. Lewis would talk about the miserableness of sin, you know, I mean, as the confession said, and there is no health in us. Like these are all things that we have to say by faith, just as much as that, that we have been saved by grace through faith. And so I think, again, the power of all this comes from hearing. And, and by preaching, and to your point, Nick, uh, when ministers are given an opportunity even simply to pray, which is you know usually the clearest indication of what someone believes when you actually hear them pray, that if we lose the opportunity to say something of the truth of God and His saving work in Christ, then we've lost the opportunity to actually open ears and open hearts through through hearing by faith. And I think that's what you know, a men and a women. <laughs> the God of our many understandings is just continuing to uh, keep the veil, as Peter, as Paul would say, over the eyes um, of unbelievers.
1: I suppose it's a vestige of postmodernism. I'm, I'm not an expert in those sorts of things,
0: those <laughs> movements. So y'all can correct me if I'm wrong. But there are no experts in postmodernism <laughs> at all, Nick. <laughs> fair, <so>. fair enough. <laughs> it,
1: it does seem to me, though, that there was a time when the search for truth was seen as a good thing and an honorable thing and the thing that any educated person or any person should be doing. And now it seems like the exclamation that is held in highest esteem is, I don't know. And I think I always want to say, but don't you want to? Do you believe in God? Well, I don't know if he exists well, don't you want to figure it out? And it seems like today, the person who is held as the smart one is the one who refuses to land a plane anywhere. And and that seems to be a much harder conversation to start than the one with your friend, for instance, who at least seems to be trying to figure out what's going on.
2: Yeah, I know you, many people point this out, but I mean, there's just that, that I don't know is also a kind of, and it, the implication is no one can know, right? You, I've, I, no one can know the truth, so I'm, I'm not going to make a claim because we just beyond our ability. That also is, of course, a truth claim. You're, you're saying, yes, sure. You, it's a, It's you're saying you're making a truth about us about about the rea- nature reality that we are unable to know, and you've got to be able to you've got to be able to support that. Um, mm-hmm. And, and,
1: it probably and really where, ultimately means well, I'm in
0: charge, but and it goes right, back right. to, it goes back to, again, nothing new under the sun. I mean, this is a platonic dialogue, a guy named Gorgias, you know, and he talks about how um, he was like the crypto uh, or the proto cynic. I think he was before Diogenes, the cynic. It doesn't matter, though. He, he had this, this aphorism. I just thought about this because it has to do with John one, but he had this I just sort of love that this, your the name recall you have is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it is, well, thank you. At the syllogism, um, he said nothing can be known. Uh, nothing can be known. Period. If something could be known, it couldn't be uh, communicated. And if I might be not getting this exactly right, but but essentially the, but if and if it could be communicated, no, no nothing can be known. If, if something could be known, we wouldn't be able to understand it. And even if we could understand it, we couldn't communicate it. Okay. Some, something along these lines. But this was like a philosophical understanding for, for cynicism and ultimately nihilism. Well, so a guy named Louis Marcos, who teaches at Texas Christian, taught this class called uh, From Plato to Post And this is his insight. And I can't own it, but I have preached it since because it's awesome. He says, let's look at John, the Gospel of John. And it's obviously the most, uh, well, it's, it's arguably one of the most theologically uh, rich, you know, and John is, is operating with Platonic concepts, you know, Greek, Greek, uh, Greek philosophical concepts, most namely the word, right? So he's like, he would have been conversant with the arguments against the incarnate God, the knowability and communicability of God. And so could it just simply be in the back of John's mind when he's arguing about the logos in the beginning, He's he has in his head the objections that would have been prevalent amongst the cynics and the, the nihilists of the time, that God not only uh, was known, but could, has spoken, and then therefore could be communicated. And I just thought that was like when I listened to that, I was on a train, like a little audiobook, and I like had to take a deep breath and like walk, you know, walk the cars and like uh-huh. just kind of get reset. But I thought it was so fascinating because this idea that we've inherited that everyone was living under a rock before Descartes, and then all of a sudden Descartes said, nothing can be true except the fact that I doubt, and there I, you know, I think, therefore I am. And, you know, if you don't have any sense of history, you think, well, that's when thought began. Yeah. But you realize that the, the counterpoint to the Christian message, to the Jews first, and then to the Judeo-Christians, has always been that God is this unknowable unsearchable God of our many understandings, you know, it's something up there that we, even if we knew it, we couldn't say what it really was. And even if we could say what it was, like I would say it to, to you and you would hear it differently. Well, it, that's what you think, <laughs> but it's, that's it's not also, what God yeah. has
2: said. It's also, I mean, just it's also a lie. I mean, it, exactly. It's a, he does know. We do know Romans one, going back to what Nick was saying earlier, Romans one and it tells us very clearly that everyone knows to say i don 't know is a defense mechanism it's a, it's, i don 't have to make a decision about this i don 't have to be confronted with the either or i don't have to be, i 't have to to, to to decide whether or not i 'm going to submit myself to God because i don 't know um, that he exists and and I think there 's probably some maybe subconscious maybe conscious idea that that 's going to fly yeah. uh, before the throne uh, lord i, I didn 't know and uh-huh. And and no, that that's not true. And I think the best way to attack that is, of course, the gospel itself, because that's the only thing that's going to pierce through that. But
0: um, but well, I think that's where we just keep doing what we're doing is that the. I preach about, I have a funeral tomorrow and I have a sort of a a, a standard funeral sermon that I work the out, out through. But one of the arguments is that, you know, the, the great question that lies that hangs over the funeral is what exactly has happened here? You know, where is this guy? Uh, What, what was his life leading up to it and where does his hope, you know, end? And I say, you know, for thankfully for many people here, that question has been answered for this man who I happen to know. uh, It was in fact answered and lived and it's, great joy i mean it's there's some morning but Many funerals I know that I've done, there've been a lot of um, confusion over that. And so I just point out the fact that if, no matter what sort of agnosticism you have about these questions, your life continues to force answers to them, whether you want to or not. So you're just being dragged like a tow rope behind like the inexorable march of time, like over bricks and through walls and, um, you know, through marriages and through rehab and through despair and death and ultimately death. And to just punt this question, is to essentially uh, well it's essentially be a nihilist you know what is truth like pilot you know like i don't want to live in this this backwards um sweaty place and i hate everything and what is truth <laughs> you know pass me the wine like let me give me my fiddles as nero you know and we say well that's an alternative to there, there there's an option for that but but let's come let us let's talk about something um more beautiful still you know, and I think that 's where backed full circle to why we care about this at all, I think from a pastoral standpoint is that you know it 's not like we 're just sort of dogmaticians who want to get out there and win debating points you know it 's like we legitimately can see the the life of hopeless nihilism that comes from worshiping the unknown God. Um, And thankfully, that's not all we have to to offer. And then, you know, conversely, the joy of having been known by God and to actually have a name and a a person and work to attach to um, the majesty of creation and the hope for redemption is, well, you know, I could preach about that the rest of my life. (laughs) I mean, that's what we do. And so I think, you know, that's where it sounds harsh. You know, it always sounds harsh, but it's just like we talk about all the time. The surgeon in the surgeon's hand, a uh, scalpel, is a very healing instrument. And so in, the, in a preacher's hand, the law and the gospel are two parts of the same words of God, which uh, can seem cruel until it is seen as the that which brought life. You know, and I think that's where, because, you know, we could sit around and just make fun of, Sad, cynical people, all you want, but that's no, that's not, um, that's not what we're doing. You know, I think that from a professional standpoint, we could say there's a little bit of malpractice that we can we can lay at the feet of like fellow um, ordained ministers. You know, like there's a like that's not how you play the game. Um, but you know, in terms of just the actual person on the street that is laboring under this, this vague sense of the divine or the universe or karma or some ungodly mix of the three. Well, we're going to go get them. <laughs> you know, that's what we're doing. So, you know, I mean, that's, that's the mission of our, that's, that's how will they hear unless we are sent and how can they sent to their, you know, called. And when they say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, you know, or, or his feet share good news or I'm, I'm mixing all of my <laughs> yes. verses up. Well, Jesus
1: Christ is, in fact, the name above every name. He is the name we preach, the name that we pray to, the name in which we do even this. It is all the time that we have uh, for ourselves this week. Uh, We're so grateful to you for listening. Um, If you want to keep this conversation going, we hope you'll be in touch with us. You can rate and review the pod on iTunes. Send us an email, mailbag at standfirminfaith.com. Uh, thanks as always to Matt Kennedy and JD Koch. I'm Nick Lannon. We'll be back next week. until then, by the grace of God in that name above every name Jesus Christ we'll be standing firm.